Good afternoon, everybody. Hi. Hi. Very, very, <laughs> very good to see everybody. So, maybe. No, no, I'm kidding. It, it's really wonderful to see everyone. Um, my name is Reginald Harris, and uh, I'd like to welcome you to uh, the Pratt Library and to the uh, this year's edition of the annual Cave uh, Canem Poetry Reading. Uh, I want to thank Judy Cooper and the Pratt Library and all the Pratt staff, both here and 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 not uh, that are able to attend, for uh, for doing this uh, yet again. We've done this for a number of years. We're coming up on ten almost that we've gotten people uh, together from Kavi Khanum, the African American uh, Poets Workshop uh, and Retreat, to uh, from the area to come and read along with some of our uh, faculty members, like Professor Siebel's here. Um, and it's always a great pleasure. But uh, this is just one of many programs that, uh, that the Pratt does. There's that wonderful compass back there. Um, in, if you were not here, it's, I, I almost came early, but I couldn't. Uh, Jesse Norman was not here, but in the auspices of the Pratt Library up the street at the Walters on Friday, which is... Astonishing! You do this after I leave, Judy. What? What is this? I, I leave the Pratt, and you bring Jesse Norman. I'm hurt, but anyway. Um, and um, later on uh, this month, Maxine Claire, the writer Maxine Claire, will be here. That's on Wednesday, the tenth, uh, for her new uh, memoir slash writing guide. Imagine this: creating the work you love. I will say, if you do not know the work of Maxine Claire, shame on you. She is wonderful. She does not publish enough. Her, her, her poetry is wonderful. Her fiction is extraordinary. And please, so please come, because this is a rare event to, to see her. Um, and also, uh, the Pratt is in collaboration with Little, Tup, Little Patuxent Review, doing a poetry contest. Um, your poem not only will be published in Little Patuxent, but also be out large and for everyone to see out in the windows uh, here, at, uh, here at the Pratt. Um, the uh, poems have to be received before the 1st of March of next year. And as a special bonus, one of our readers is the editor of Little Patuxent Review. There he is, Stephen Lavia. So um, you can slip them to him uh, if, if you'd like or, or, or harass him. So to talk to him about that as well. Um, okay, so as I uh, always say, or usually say uh, to people that uh, come to, to this reading that uh, you think that you've come to a poetry reading, but actually you've stumbled onto a family reunion. Um, Kave Kanem, as I said, is a week-long retreat for African-American poets. Um, you have to write a poem every day, um, which sounds daunting it's even worse when it's due, when you know okay i gotta have a poem by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning or earlier or later uh i hope it's it's still 10 o'clock i can't remember it's been a while yeah that that comes real early um <laughs> sometimes um and um you can go for uh three years um they do not have to be consecutive years so some of us stretch that thing out for as long as we possibly could because it's a rare event to be in a uh an environment um, and people of color and other people in, who are minorities and women will understand this, that someplace where you can make a reference and you don't have to explain what it means. White people aren't going, uh, I don't understand. Could you tell me? Douglas, Douglas, I don't, that, that name isn't familiar to me. Um, you don't have to do that. Um, I mean, there may be some things that are a little bit um, local, 
Um, nobody outside of Baltimore understands sauerkraut on Thanksgiving, for example. But there are other things that, uh, that, that you can connect with. And I can say back since I was one of the early uh, people, not the first year, but the second year, um, that I, at that point, I had never seen, I did, had no idea that there were 20 living, active, fantastic African-American poets. It's like all the black poets, oh yeah, it's Langston Hughes, and it's these people, it's all these great dead people, or these people that I will never, ever get a chance to meet, and suddenly here they were in the same room, and also my contemporaries and other people. So it's really, it's really extraordinary. Um, so um, I thank them, and I also thank uh, everyone here for, for coming. Uh, I do want to say, however, that... Um, Oh, yeah, one other thing about CaveCon before I move into today, um, and that is that the point of the program is not to make everyone write in the same way. Uh, people come from a lot of different aesthetics and different styles. Um, and, yes, a number of the people that have been through the program ha are successful, whatever that means for poets. Um, so, But it's not like a... Um, it's not going to guarantee, oh, wow, I'm going to be famous. Once again, famous poet. What, what does this mean? Um, but the point of Cave Canem is to make you the best you, to make you the best writer you can possibly be. So, um, and I definitely appreciate that. <clears throat> uh, we have a, a group of readers here, and everyone will be reading for four minutes, um, except for Tim, who will stretch out a bit, uh, we hope. Uh, well, actually, you will stretch out a bit. Sorry, there's no question. You've you, you got to stretch out. Um, however, I want to start with a bit of a, uh, a preface. Um, this has been um, a difficult few weeks. Let me just be... Um, <laughs> um, yeah, this, it's, been, it's really been a difficult few weeks, maybe even a difficult month, and I think it's very likely that the tone of this reading and some of the work that you're going to hear today might not have been read, or the tone would have been different if this reading had occurred a month ago. Um, I want to call your attention to uh, Black Poets Speak Out, uh, which is both a hashtag, Black Poets Speak Out, speak out on uh, Twitter and Facebook, uh, there's a Tumblr and a lot of YouTube videos uh, where a number of us read poems uh, to our current situation in Ferguson, in New York, in the United States, in the world. And um, yeah, so I will do this. Although I have um, a number of qualms about this gesture simply because I believe we should not surrender. I will do this in solidarity with uh, the nationwide, the global expressions of support um, and the fact that black lives do matter. And I want to, would like to dedicate this reading um, to the memory of Mike Brown and Eric Garner and in support of their families. There you go. So, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so we have a number of readers here tonight, um, and we will start with uh, someone who's got a new book. And and once again, as I always say, we are in the Poe Room. Um, it's also P O E. It's also P O O R. 
So support your poets. We have books. Many of us have books for sale. Uh, Tim's at the table. The rest of us, we got little bags. We're pulling them out. Uh, so, so support your local poet. Um, and I want to start with the wonderful Bettina Judd. Good afternoon, everyone. So yeah, I have a book. Um, I'm going to read one poem from this new book and then um, a poem more recently for recent events. Oh, okay. Sorry. Soft-spoken. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. This is how to measure pain to maggot brain, thanks to Funkadelic, which of course begins that song with, Mother Earth is pregnant for the third time, for y'all have knocked her up. I have tasted the maggots in the mind of the universe, and I was not offended, for I knew I had to rise above it all or drown in my own shit. How do you, daughter, measure pain? How do you suture a cracked skull flickering south? One moment you were flying over North Carolina, the next you were eating red dirt, screaming at someone's feet, dangling. It's 1999, a chain snaps, a head rolls, it starts to rain. Into your pelvis, they examine you. You whimper, knees buckle, feet in stirrups, a gloved hand, no, a bent spoon stirring brimly stew pot. How do you, daughter, forget dying in 1830-something, your hands in your dress trying to find the child whose infant head is beneath a heel? It's 1917, and the smell of gasoline is a lot like gasoline. So you fill your tank, drive home, stop in an intersection. You cannot move. They honk. You stand. They prod, fondle your breasts in the mouth of a child. He is not yours. His face imprinted on the jar of food, turning in your hands. Quick now, in your pocket. Write this down. Don't forget. You are a good daughter. You remember your mother's names. You cry, and you don't know why, in the library looking up, the Negro, a beast, pages open beneath hands from 1970 to 2006, how do you, daughter, measure pain? By the length and width of your black woman's self, echo of a scream muffled under cupped hands in wild eyes, graceful nods and smiles. You have found yourself in each broken body, each elation, your mother's scar, hers and hers and you. And this is I Can't Breathe. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Genesis 2, 7. (gasps) By now, I am very used to loving without question, without reciprocity, without certainty. 
Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Job 7, 7. They said he killed himself. His hands cuffed behind his back. Shot himself in the chest. (sighs) I can't breathe. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone for the days are but a breath, Job seven sixteen. He fought him. Can you believe it? Fought an armed police officer, expected to live or something. <clears throat> I can't breathe. The spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life, Job thirty three four. He was brandishing a toy gun. He was brandishing a wallet. Walking home, she was at a funeral. She was sleeping in her bed. <clears throat> I can't. Breathe. He breathed his last and died and was gathered unto his people. Genesis twenty five seventeen. By now you should know that the only certainty is death, and there are no witnesses. See they too tend to die. <clears throat> he breathed his last and died, and was gathered unto his people. Genesis thirty five twenty nine. By now, you should know that you should trust the news. Fall on your faces, nigger. Why you gotta die all the time? (laughs) By now, I am very used to loving without reciprocity, without certainty. I am a Christian after all. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Right. Um, Saida Augustine. Good afternoon. This first piece is called If Tamir Rice and Eric Garner Wore Heels. We drive by their dead bodies, find some other right man to mourn. No houses would be burnt down, new film would be news film would be crumbled to dust, and their brothers would cry in shame. We'd lay them out in suits instead of dresses, call them by their birth names, and when the bodies come to the mortician, carry on dragged from the side of the road, limbs splayed, organs blue cold, he'll close the eyes, clouded with more terror than there are trees in Chibok, 276 black girls struck mute and knowing, drowned in a la. We'd forget Wasile, a 14-year-old Nigerian wife preparing dinner for Umar, her fat husband. Destruction is a sloppy cook. Her slight hands sew meat with rat poison. What hours did she spend alone with him? Till he called out something in her so hard, blood shattered. In court, her father will recall shaking that she never wanted to marry him. Four people died from the meat she served that night. I wonder if she sat amidst those bodies at the warped table in bitter red heat like a queen, head head high, hair falling, and let out a wail as mighty as any man. 
Howl like a wounded dog. Make riots of wind and fire. Burn your own fucking house down. Forget Brittany and Crystal. Stand like an idiot cut, bloody, and bruised before God in a bombed-out theater and ask why we'll pour onto the street like a bright red river for a sweet black boy, but never in the light of day remember to march once for a black queer girl doused in gasoline and burnt down in front of her love's a million flames. This is Kahinde Wiley, a Kahinde Wiley portrait of the improbable. I've forgotten how to talk to God. The air is wet with grief. I sit in a car and dream for hours. The sweating police chief in Ferguson promises restraint in the mist of fire, eyes squinting against the dazzle of sunlight but the pictures, bedlam. Thick-armed women brace against half-numb children wailing, veins in their throat pulsing so hard with fear it is impossible to parse air. Call out for the strong-breasted teenagers who don't know no better. Pose proudly for pictures in front of blazing white smoke. Speak desperately in captions that will mangle their names. Call out for their mothers when the tear gas surges straight into their tents. Make their eyes full when their bellies can't be. Hands nested round knives, stones, cups, whatever fool weapons they can find that will speak a language that a thousand arms will not bear. Call out for Raylisha, Islan, Candy, Maya, Rainisha, Brittany, Zakia, Michael, Amadou, Eric, Tiffany, Zarada, Eric, Crystal, Oscar, Brittany, and Trayvon. Call out for whosoever meant living was meant to blaspheme. Turn off the television, choke the shit out of the pundits, the street corner preachers who cannot find the salt in their mouths to speak of boys dressing like girls, dykes who wore fitted caps and bow ties, and young men all swagger, tims and sinew. Their mothers will weep epics for their deaths, but we will write their lives. How Zakia hollered at soft girls past midnight, the hours spent learning to take one whole piece of silk and tie a bow, the music of Islan's walk, a fortress of thick black hair and pressed heart for lips, the way her joy filled the air of dove soap and made the concrete crack into something sweeter, or the time Michael stumbled home, blazed near death, singing Marvin to the carved-out ribs of old houses amidst new stars, fell asleep on a bench, crowned by a halo of flies, laughter and his own drool, swathed in a white dirty tee, arms wide open, body incoherent in its tenderness, prone in peace and unafraid. Woke up in tears of dew and a dim sun under a tapestry of woven clouds and walked into an open door. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next, Tafisha.
Edwards? Yes, please. Come on up here. Hello, everyone. Um, I've been doing a lot of work um, about the intersections of sexual violence and intimate partner violence. Uh, last summer, I was almost raped by someone who I would have considered a friend until then. And so this is an unpacking of that. It's called the double bind. And in a double bind, a person holds two thoughts simultaneously, and they tend to associate with the negative thought. Four. Gin is the tension of the night. Gin is heavy on our tongues. Our tongues are heavy on each other and flat and limber and searching. A hand is sneaking in my blouse. A hand is sneaking in my blouse, and this is not embellishment. You know the way you sneak. That peculiar, weight-bearing creep, the circular root of this verb. The circular root of this verb, this, creep, this creeping, this questing, this alarm bell surge in the cortex corridor, this warning, muted by gin, I relax. I relax. I do not want to be that girl. That girl takes it the wrong way. That girl should just let the hand creep. This is all right. Is this all right? The mute gin girl relaxes and breathes and counts the bodies on the 3 a.m. sidewalk. Negative four. Counts the leaves on the 3 a.m. tree, 64. On the 3 a.m. tree, 64, 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, 70. We are at the hour of recrimination. Only legs and wallets are open after 10. Only legs and wallets are open after 10. We are five hours past respectable, five hours past reasonable. We are 35 minutes from my house. A hand snuck in my blouse and panties and scalp and a questing, a searching, a you smell so good, so good. This circular root path consent, this gin heavy quest, my panic on his breath, this being taken the wrong way, the wrong way, wrong hour, wrong night, wrong dress, wrong choice, and a terrible pause. Count the leaves on the 3 a.m. tree, 70, 69, 68. 35 minutes passed. In 48 population-based surveys from around the world, 10 to 69% of women reported being physically assaulted by an intimate male partner at some point. What is more intimate than a fist, than the champagne cork pop of cartilage and bone? More than 50% of rape slash sexual assaults occur one mile from home. Four out of ten occur at home, where the heart is. The lifetime rate of attempted rape and rape for women by race, American Indian women and Alaskan women, 34.1%. Mixed race women, 24.4%. Black women, 18.8%. White women, 17.7%. All women, 17.6%. Asian Pacific Islander women, 6.8%. And a friend says to me, but that's not even 20%. You have a better chance of being hit by a car.
Between the state-sanctioned murder of your son and mine, there is the old pain, the old tongue, blood and its heavy hand, its spread fingers, its hunger for concrete, its fear of containment, of commitment to the body, its slide down the torso of your boy, love made flesh, object permanence, your boy silent and sullen, long-limbed, voice deep as a well. Between your waking and his last sleeping, there is the bared throat of a hungry god, a trillion cells stalling, arresting the cardiac, the heartbeat of your womb made flesh made fire. There is silence, its heavy hand, its closed fist. There is a 357 caliber. Where is your boy? A 38 special. Have you seen him? A nine millimeter. You just sent him to the store. A 45 caliber. How long could it take? A 12 gauge. Maybe you should call just to make sure he is still. And the names they will not call your son on the news. He who takes out the trash after only two reminders. He that saves money in case of. He of the ever extended hand. Uncontested call of duty champ. Boy that smiles. Boy that sings. Boy that beatboxes and shower off key and proud. Boy that is your body outside of your body. Dreamer, beloved, child. Thank you. Okay, all you late folks got to sit in front. Like church. Come on down. <laughs> Stephen Levia, yeah, if you would please. Stephen Levia. called Headley Without the Rooster. Here go the money, I heard Buddy Bolden say, but forget it, today it's just dad wadding up a few twenties to throw at my chest. What you came for, take it away. A clump of double saw bucks dropped where he taught two sons to shoot hoops Welcome the sun as kinfolk. Dribble drive, crossover, drop step, layup. On a driveway nearly gone to weeds. In heat that would make an Oreo blister. Backing me down near the backboard, he'd say, not a black man, an American. And scoop his baby hook. An easy two. His strip of concrete, his court, and nothing made him miss my mother more than asking for money. It came to trash talk after every basket, never beat him head to head the way he beat me with bills. Ever heard a young rooster dead in the middle of the night crow and wait? Ever seen a man slaughter the king of the barnyard? 
I waited all weekend to ask or crow or beg some cash for school clothes. What I got was a sternum double tap, the blunt end of a macheted sunset, an easy two. Funky butt, funky butt, take it. Should have said more, backed him down before squatting at the crumbled curb, my hand hooked like a beak, scooping $40 off the ground, away. Even confused, even in darkness, I hear the rooster crow a command to the sun, saying rise and believe it. I hear Buddy Bolden in a dream, his voice like fogged dawn, say, here go the money. And there is my father offering his hookshot to the sky. Now, read a poem about my hometown. It's called Natural. If I say New Orleans, I must say orphan, must parade it before all dirges, all Zotico. Four golden men mortgaged to the street, the filament of their souls, beignets and bee bread, panhandle on the dead. Big Ezekiel the first ruts in the yellow of their name like an organ, like crab fat. In winter, each becomes a street lamp. Wrought iron in the blood rusts bourbon through the eye. If I say New Orleans, I must number the things that do not drown. Twenty shades of local purple, of local blended blue and red on black, the kind of fist paints. A levy of bottles, stained glass, one for every child without a paren. The ways to wail in jazz, improvising heat and weeping and grief. To make a song a delta, a mouth, the Mississippi. The fat of one Tuesday floated like a flowered hearse through the streets. If I say New Orleans, I must speak of beads in my wife's body. And the sun the pleasure of the sky, its blue body so near to death, and the night that comes, its pearls of sweat thrown out, I must pray. This is the last parish, the last altar in America where something, food, remains holy. Even shit sanctifies the land. To arrive here, you must sink, must bow below the level of the ocean, the first priest of the world, and be christened. If I say New Orleans, I must mention being born. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Um, and let's see. Okay. You ready to go? Okay. No, uh, this is not Pharrell, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sheila Patterson. Come on up here. Good afternoon. I'm going to read a, a trio of poems that kind of together are about gentrification, police racism, and internationalist communism. The word like. 
I'm like overusing the word like, though I still maintain it was ridiculous when I wasn't allowed to use as my yearbook quote, like, oh my God, isn't that like censorship? The school said like is slang, but in third grade, Ms. Abrams taught it as poetry. But then you see something real, like your father in handcuffs begging the cops to let him put on his shoes. It's a Monday morning. He has to get his kids to school, but instead the cops show up, and he is wearing socks. You know, and you are speechless, even though the sentence, please, at least let him put on his shoes, pinballs about your head. The cops must have taken a step back to see the situation, his daughter's skin color shining like the polished pine wood floors was closer to theirs than it was to their father's and realized the handcuffs were humiliation enough. You know, and what do you do at school? Guess what happened? My father was arrested this morning, but the cops finally allowed him to bring his shoes. I mean, because also my friends know he is black feels like a real weight, like very different from the summer when we had to make secret meetings and phone calls with mom because he had us for a month of custody. It was all adventure, like the sleeping births to Chicago. I had something like whooping cough and Zara had a bloody forehead from her bicycle fall. I helped dad pull the loose strands of her hair that got caught in the blood and pus so that when it scabbed, it would be clean. In a moving train, you had to be careful, and you could tell it hurt. But we were warriors, travelers, adventure seekers, ready to stay awake to see the air vibrating thick as we crossed state lines and flashed back to a new time zone. No, there is nothing fun about watching cops arrest your father. It flips the whole world onto your shoulders. You have to be cool for Zara and make sure she gets to school, then make sure you get to school, and you have to decide to keep it a secret from mom because to tell would feel like a betrayal to dad. The grown-up feeling as you accept the phone call from prison with your dad telling you that he is okay, that it was all a mistake, that he will be coming home soon, is the loneliness of waking up from a nightmare, too old to climb into your parents' bed. All that will change the word like, for you realize you are like a valley girl, and your father was not like arrested. Saturday night, wonderful. My father was an original hipster picking his girls up on bicycle and riding the streets of Brooklyn, Peugeot, Mangusta, Rally. Flute lessons and wooden sleds. V-neck, knit, cricket, sweater, upper east side, boutique whim. The gold lame suit in the 1970s, irony. Baby blue ruffled tuxedo shirt at the small town Ayrshire wedding, Irony. Brooklyn native, track star, tech nerd, his girls built their own computers, international, multiracial, queer. The Park Slope project, though, a failure. Retreat to Mother's House, Crown Heights, who knew what movement that prefigure? It's different when racist cops choke your growth, and what 
loss, his daughter's anger. From the Rotsnad book of Daily Meditations. And this is a, just line breaks to a transcript from Democracy Now! We could buy our way out of the problem by, for example, gas flares. In Nigeria, gas flares are illegal. They've been claiming that they're going to end gas flaring in the Niger Delta for decades. Now, along comes the World Bank through their global gas flare reduction partnership, and they're going to actually pay corporations like Chevron to end gas flaring which is illegal, and those credits will then count toward Chevron continuing to emit in the global north, and they can claim emission reductions. Thank you. Thank you. Come on up here, Big Daddy. Venus Thrash, please. I like that. <laughs> Call them as you see them. Um, I'm always amazed, uh, Reggie, at uh, uh, every year whenever, when I, whenever I see you, how uh, much younger and prettier you are. Okay. <laughs> um, this poem is called Alexis. At, oh, by the way, I'm reading from my debut collection of poetry <laughs> called The Fateful Apple. Alexis at Dusk. Battered playgrounds dot the city. Exhale at dusk one last sticky-fingered kid. Toddlers tumbling chasing a simple ball over erratic grass. Unwavering dads pitching fastballs to little sluggers who are daughters who'll never play major league. Tuckered moms chauffeuring one in a double stroller, a second strapped to tender breasts, untouched, unkissed since the first trimester, who wish away in vain the trembling thigh, the dry tongue. Rush home, toss chicken nuggets in the oven, baby bottles in the warmer, stir-fry on the stove. Grandmothers, tired of raising children, who unleash stern warnings to hard-headed grandkids and surely swat behinds despite the spectacle, who'll feed them and somebody else's child she barely knows tonight out of mercy and the goodness of her heart. Old men hogging all day the few scattered benches who refuse their roasted peanuts and bologna sandwiches on white bread to the squirrels who eye them, the dirty pigeons they curse and shoo away. But Alexis at dusk, 15, skinny, too tall to fit in anywhere, fatherless, truant, the bane of her mother's ire, won't go home, won't be fed baked chicken or brown rice, be cleansed by warm water and ivory soap on the skin, sneak a boyfriend with a one-track mind into her bed tonight, but will watch with weepy eyes the sun fade behind a jagged cityscape. Embrace a thin frame, hostile to nightfall's chilly air. Regard encroaching darkness with suspicion. Sleep 
open-eyed, one hand in the pocket, swaying slightly to morning on the swings. A different key. In faded bell-bottom denims, floral print halters, red ribbons unloosened in lopsided Afro puffs zipping in the wind, oblivious to future superstardom, but none of us is spared the hard fall from grace ignited by fame and foolish money eager to be spent. Belting out the number one soul serenade in the summer of 76, almost better than Aretha. Giving him something he can feel. Spinning on the turntable without end. Raise the rafters of New Hope Baptist higher. Not God, but you, the congregation praised. Meet a girl at Catholic school, long lost sister, found, compelled you to sing salvation songs in a different key, a rumor blossoming on the vine, cut by a debut gone platinum at 21, four top hits in heavy rotation, a Grammy, America's sweetheart, darker. Quick death cannot quell the discontent of life partly filled, the rest surrendered to an ideal image, show business demands, Rock stars, fallen divas, women loving men. If Whitney's true tenor was lesbian, she shouldn't have had to otherwise pretend. Last poem is called Let Me Come Back. Let me come back a black man. Let me come back tall, dark, athletic. Let me be a pro. Let bling adorn me. Let my houses be mansions. God, let my wife be fine. Let me come back a black man. Let me come back with mad lyrical skills and a gold microphone. Let me be hard-edged and bulletproof. Lord, let my woman be fine. Let me come back a black man. Let me come back Harvard-minded and White House-bound. Let my children be privileged and blessed. Jesus, let the First Lady be fine. Thank you. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. It, my secret is that there really is this painting somewhere that looks really awful. Uh, but unfortunately, it only goes down to here, so my knees, you can forget it. Uh, let me see, where is that Amanda Johnston? Where's she at? Come on up here, gorgeous. How y'all doing? Said oh. from Bettina J. Love you, Ma. I'm gonna read two poems um, from my chapbook, Guap. If you never heard that term, Guap uh, is a reference to any high amount of money. Uh, so these poems in this chapbook deal with our complicated relationship with money. Guap. You dirty knot laced with coke, rubber band belted friend. You money clip baller, flaky onion of access. You money bin, golden goose. 
you hard-earned check, overtime weekend, you late-night sugar daddy, mama needs a new pair of shoes, you never enough, more money, more problems, you jonesing for the Joneses, six-inch green picket fence, you financed high interest, you no free lunch, snake-eyed gambler, you charity case, crowdfunding do-gooder, you pocket money, dead president tomb, you trust, lie, cheat, just enough to get by, you right on time, enough to get by, you make a way to get by. And it ain't prostitution. It ain't prostitution if you don't take cash, if we're in a recession, if you're married to the trick, if the cutoff notice came, if it was only one time, if he, she was nice, if it was food, if you didn't kiss, if you know their mama, if it's in another state, if you like it, if you lied like you like it, if you hope they like it, if it's for tuition, if it's for books, if your baby needs school clothes, if you need new clothes, if the rents do, if you don't go all the way, if you pray about it, if you tithe 10%, if you change the sheets, if you wash yourself in hot water, if you sleep at night, if you dream, if you need it, if you want it, if you don't remember it. Thank you. One of the other things about Kavi Economist makes it hard to be a man because these women are like, oh my God, what the hell are we going to do? To which I say, Alan King. Oh, oh, that's a nice setup, right? Right? Okay, no pressure. No pressure, Alan, no pressure. Come on. <laughs> okay, so the first poem is uh, Gluttony. Combing the bargain bin, a woman who's not your wife brushes beside you asking if the Roy Hargrove CD you're holding is any good. She's close enough for you to smell her ginger patchouli body wash, the angle she gives you in her leather bomber jacket, the one unzipped showing a white tee retracing her athletic stomach and arms, the jacket with its collar flared, makes her a tuberose blossom booming its honeydew scented tune along your neckline, along her neckline. And your father's voice from two decades before warns you about gorging on everything you see. You were 16 the first time he told you when your hunger hovered like that summer at Myrtle Beach. Sisters strutting the boardwalk beneath a honey barbecue sun whose sweet light made each of them a long stretch of marinade, a chromatic scale of flavors along which your tongue was burning to play. And isn't, it, and isn't temptation always lurking, eager to hold our common sense hostage? 
You tell the flower woman you're married after she points to a flyer for a roots show and says y'all should go. When she says, are you happy? You remember a brother once asking how you could love one woman when the world's a buffet, the possibilities of pleasure laid out like jumbo crab cakes, lasagna rolls, and buffalo wings. What's gluttony if not a symptom of our own hunger consuming us? Wasn't Jack is careless selling his sustenance for a handful of beans? You remember the story of the stalk that almost made him a hungry giant's grub? You still hear the pastor preaching about gluttons wearing the rags of drowsiness, which is how your wife found you stumbling through the days. Your life before her was a stringless violin, a dark garden of wilted sunflowers, a camper trailer rusting against a moldy brick wall. You were once a city of power lines, boarded up clock towers, junked cars, and blazing drum barrel fires. What she saw in you, only her heart knows. Just like it knew you'd leave the temptress back at the listening booth, watching the automatic doors close behind you. At 16, you thought all there was to living was filling your appetite. Too young to know love is the everyday meal, that the lack of it kills quicker than the absence of food. All right, so this last one is uh, The Angel Speaks with the New York Times. What? The Garden of Eden? That's what you think it's like up there? Back home, I'm a soldier. Posted along the perimeter of heaven, you think after a millennial of battling dark forces, we'd get a parade, be allowed to get a little action from the groupies. But we can't leave you mortals alone for a second without the rogue ones trying to kill each other. This one's mad at that one for something that happened before they were born. This one's darker than that one, so that one's got to conquer this one. Now, I got to wipe the milk off their mouths. But I ain't complaining. It's better than standing around laughing at God's jokes, pampering and praising him all the time. This must be where you end up when he catches you dreaming of busty Victoria's secret angels. Now I'm posing as a mortal undercover, waiting for Lucifer and his henchmen to pop up. Rookies, they get distracted. And there's a lot of that. My mortal body fights the circus that masquerades as news. It's enough to make a rookie blow his cover convinced he's seen the devil already. There's a pro-lifer supporting the death penalty. Oh snap, there's Mr. Family Values making it rain at strip clubs. The unbiased media is a button on the corporate lapel. Oh, I'm going to be here for a minute. Got to reach those knuckleheads. Gotta give it to Mr. Bighorns. He puts on a hell of a show. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Um, in order to uh, expiate myself for doing that to you, I hadn't planned on reading, um, but I'm sorry. So, 
Um, so I will, and I'm even more sorry than I'm actually going to be reading. But anyway, um, uh, one of the other things that tends to happen when Kavikan and folks get together is that they try out new poems, and so this is still fairly damp. Um, and um, I want to apologize a little bit for it, uh, but this is the sort of stuff I heard when I was growing up. And I also want to apologize a little bit uh, preemptively to my family. There's a lot of uh, work that sort of things are floating around my head that sort of start with a, a title similar to this. <clears throat> my fathers teach me about money. So, Oh, yeah, that's the other thing, too, that you'll notice that we all sort of talk to each other. Even though we don't talk, we talk. So once again, here it is, money. <clears throat> my fathers teach me about money. Always folded down and over like this. Always counted towards you, like the Jews, so more comes in. That's why niggas never have any money. We're always counting out, sending it away. Ask a lot of questions about every loan. Who's asking? Find out all you can about who they are, who's asking, where they work, and how they'll pay you back. Not that you should be loaning out money anyway. And never ask for money, help, or anything. Be a man. Stand up on your own, too. Whatever you ask for or get promised, you most likely won't get anyway. A hand, a kiss, an hour of free time, anything, nothing. But you go ahead and promise anyway. Anything, everything, more than you can live. Let your mouth write all the checks it wants. Somebody else will always cash them. Um, and I hadn't planned on reading this, but she knows why. The secret of our success. Dishes pile up and get washed. Laundry accumulates and gets done, eventually. Days become weeks, become months, become years. Fall asleep, and it's been a year. Turn over, and it's been a decade. Wake up, and it's half your life. The youth-filled thrill unspools into routine, endless as aisles in grocery stores. Passions bank into embrace, a look, a touch, the familiar, the body as warm as blankets in winter. Memory betrays, juggling future, present, past. Was there a before you met? Another summer, another birthday, another anniversary, a new year, and your lives go on. And now, speaking of lives going on, um, I'd like to introduce, let's see, Hayes Davis, and then after that, Ms. Terry Cross Davis. Thank you. Um, since Almost since there's been Cave Canem, there has been um, support for Cave Canem at this library. And I, and I hope I speak for others, are forever grateful to you, Reggie, for this space. Um, and one of those readings, uh, I was here with Terry, and she's not starstruck. She used to work for a radio show, and she met Spike Lee and Ethan Hawke and was never, didn't come home, I met Ethan Hawke. But somebody walked through the door, and I felt this tug at my arm, and I heard, heard is that her? And it was Miss Lucio Clifton. And I was watching a Richard Pryor clip about 
uh, chokeholds from the 70s. And I was remembering Dave Chappelle uh, in a line of his about um, how uh, white people are coming to realize that police brutality is, is, is present. That was from, from 2000. And it just goes on. And so I decided to start with, with a Lucille Clifton poem, uh, Jasper, Texas, 1998. I am, I am a man's head hunched in the road. I was chosen to speak by the members of my body. The arm, as it pulled away, pointed toward me. The hand opened once and was gone. Why and why? And why should I call a white man brother? Who is the human in this place? The thing that is dragged or the dragger? What does my daughter say? The sun is a blister overhead. If I were alive, I could not bear it. The townsfolk sing we shall overcome, while hope bleeds slowly from my mouth into the dirt that covers us all. I am done with this dust. I am done. This is called America, after teaching Claude McKay's sonnet. We discuss Harlem Renaissance poetry, but discuss is the wrong verb, at least at the beginning of class, when their silent stares focus on their desks. They don't look at each other, and no one looks at me, not even the one black student in class. His shoulders, like mine, slump at the silence. I wonder if, like me, he fights the desire to leave the room, frustrated by the unspoken, what is it? Guilt? Defiance? Belief that Obama's election has burned off the fog of, of oppression, rendered irrelevant the laments of the past? Do they fear a word dropped careless in the room? When one hand breaks the stillness, I tiptoe with language, focusing on and obscuring race, dancing through scansion, poetic devices allaying their fear of a screaming indictment, stern reminder of what their ancestors did to mine. The conversation moves cautiously to the ending couplet. When the black student reads, I too sing America, I know he hears himself in the poem. I hold him back after class, ask if I can hug him, and I fight back tears as we walk out into the hallway. Thank you. CC tradition, a newish and a new poem. Knucklehead. My son's head is a fist wrapping against the door of the world. For now, it's dressers, kitchen islands, dining room tables that coax his clumsy, creating small molehills of hurt breaching the surface. The ice pack, a cold kiss to lessen the blow, equals a frigid intrusion. A boy cannot be a boy with all this mothering getting in the way. Sometimes the floor plays accomplice, snagging an ankle, elbow, top lip to swell. Other times it's a tantrum where he spills his limbs onto the hardwood, frenzied, then limp with anger, tongue clotted with frustration, 
a splay of two-year-old emotion voiced in one winding wail. My son cannot continue this path. Black boys can't lose control at 12, 30, even 43. They don't get do-overs. So I let him flail about now, let him run headfirst into the wall, learn how unyielding perceptions can be, and bear the bruising now before he grows and enters a world too eager to spill his blood and not believe how red it is. And then the new, new. This is called classical music, and as Miss Lucille will say, this has two epithangs. Uh, no one wants to get their ass beat to a soundtrack by Dave Chappelle. And she meant you no harm, breaking the girl red hot chili peppers. It's black boy all over again. I break you before they can. You nest, pawing each pillow abreast, fleshed out chemistry sustenance, newly forgotten. I've spanked you three times tonight. You, laughing, crying, hungry, defiant. My name, all need. Purse lips pleading, mommy. And I am guilty of the same sin. I miss your curled and tucked weight. Embryo, the deepest root yanked clean. And this is why babies are born ripped into this world. If you held on once, would you ever let go? Today, a cop walks free. Another black body still on the ground, not indicted, such a forked phrase, how the law deadens the tongue. So when you call me back after I've spanked you again, I know this game. I come to be near you, but punish you for the space to be alone. You crawl in my lap, heart three, body a lanky four. I cover you with a blanket, too thin to mean it. We rock to Mozart, this movement described as bitter and sweet. All right, thank you. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Hayes. Uh, we now come to the tall portion of our program. Uh, my, my fellow OG, <laughs> Brad DeJets. Hello. Hello. It's good to be back here. Thank you. Um, uh, Maudlin note, it's uh, been two years this weekend since my mother passed, and um, the last time I wasn't able to be here because of that, so hi. <laughs> something new, something old. Prototype. I couldn't believe he said that, but he did. Little rat boy walking up to a full-grown man in Georgetown looking foolish, looking desperate. Do I have anything? I was big to him, black to him, standing on Wisconsin Avenue looking through windows at dreams I couldn't buy, but I had to have something, the profile, the prototype. I fit the description, dirty blonde rat boy, dealer me gonna sell that next bag, slice that rock, pass that balloon, and get my dreams out of hock. Do I have anything? 
got some uncut heartburn for every one of you who thinks I want your daughter. Got some crystal scar tissue for everyone who thinks my hands are this big just to dribble basketballs. Got some purple micro madness for everyone who thinks these legs are for running hundred yard anythings. Do I have anything? Take this raisin. An answer is Zen Koan by Langston. Take this glass of water and see how many will float a boat stuffed with dying flesh. Take this rope and count how many strands suspend 190 kicking pounds in midair. Do I have anything? I should have sold him something. Should have palmed him my life in a baggie. Let him OD on empty purses held tight under race-baited arms. Let him suffocate on born suspect eyes glaring over fun fur-frocked shoulders. Let him convulse on the pounding echo of footsteps behind me in store aisles, walking through my dreams. And something new. Practice. And this is, they haven't heard it yet, but this is to my children. Practice. We tell you, children, to do things and you don't like it. We send you to school to get your brains pushed and shoved. You hear this, get told that, and begin to share what you've learned. Your throats begin the ritual use of phrases that you'll practice, I hope, nonstop. As much as it annoys me, I say keep on saying it. Learn the right measure of air for your lungs. Learn the right shape for your lips, your tongue, and your heart. Then set the sound your brain commands you utter. Uh-uh. That's not fair. No, no. That's not right. When you're called to fight in someone else's war, I want to hear you rise to the occasion like when I tell you to clean your room. When you're called to pick up arms against anything not physically endangering you or yours, fly above the notion and find those words you use against me when I suggest you go to bed, wash the dishes, and turn off that game. I want you to know how to say it I want you to know why you're saying it, because one day you'll need to know how and when to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not fair. No, no, that's not right. Whether it's in a classroom with a teacher and it's about Selma or Ferguson, whether it's lunchtime with classmates and it's about Montgomery or Boston Mass, whether it's at the dance or the cookout and a bully to be prepared to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not fair. No, no, that's not right. If it's Arkansas or Arizona, New York or Chicago, D.C., Sanford, 
or Oakland. Be prepared to say it. Know how to say it, when to say it. Make governments answer the same question you ask your parents. Why? May you and friends join voices with a world of young people in learning how to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not fair. No, no, that's not right. Learn how to yell it just as loud then as you do now. (laughs) Practice it with all the bass your body will allow. Thank you, Brandon, Terry, Hayes, Stephen, Sheila, Allen, Venus, Tafisha, Saida, Amanda, and Bettina. Um, it is a very great pleasure now to introduce Tim Siebels. Um, I, I, I first... <laughs> I, I, I first discovered Tim Siebel's work back uh, a number of years ago uh, with those wonderful, crazy, marvelous cartoon poems. Actually, the, there was the Boris and Natasha, really, that, that got me, and then, you know, the coyote from the Roadrunner. So this is really fantastic. It's funny, but it's not, and it's great, but it's... So who is this guy? And um, Tim is one of those poets and there are a number of them who we sort of go you know I really wish people knew more about him and his work because he's really fantastic but everybody it's sort of like everybody sleeps on Tim Siebel's and all of a sudden bam and um, earlier this year at uh, Split This Rock (laughs) amen Uh, Tim read a poem um, Once Around the Sun that knocked everybody on their behinds. Um, we were talking about it days later. I mean, not, not just after that. There were other people on the program after that. No offense. But seriously, seriously, everybody was sort of like, after that, what? You know, the next day we were still talking about that poem. I mean, so Professor C, I mean, they're, they're schooling and they're schooling. And thank you, because we were schooled. And how to do it. Once again, no pressure, right? Here, right? I, I'm, I'm famous for building, for making no pressure on, on readers. But anyway, um, so don't sleep. This man is really one of our finest poets. And he really deserves a lot more attention than he gets. And so we thank you for being here. We thank you for all that you do. We thank you for your work. Um, uh, Professor of English and Creative Writing at ODU, Pride of Philadelphia. <laughs> Mr. Tim Siebels. Yeah, it's always nice to be back in in the bosom of CC. I always realize anytime I'm up there at the at the retreat that it's just something that's all too rare in the world. That's all I can say. Now maybe uh maybe the future will see it differently, but man. I think it's a really marvelous thing. Every time I'm at those retreats, and even here, you know, I can't help but think about the Harlem Renaissance, Black Arts Movement, and the, and the way these, what we're doing has its roots in both of those things. And that what, what we're trying to do, I mean, maybe we've been trying for many, many centuries, actually, what we're trying to do is establish 
uh, a clear sense of spirit that is both sustaining and remembering. All right. I'm going to start, tell you what, I'm going to start with a villanelle. And you're right, it is not easy to come follow uh, such poems, I'm telling you. But I'll start with a villanelle. Um, it's, uh, it's called the Taste Me Blues Villanelle. And uh, it's got an epigraph that I overheard uh, in a mall. I was at one of those food courts. And this cat said, the Mad Hatter's tea party is the whole fucking world. <laughs> and I can't help but think, yeah, yeah, it is. The Taste Me Blues Villanelle. Not sure what I'm doing and can't say where I'll be. People think they know me, but don't see how I am. When they get me, I bet the germs enjoy me. I grope along this broken road from sea to shining sea. The madness roots inside me while I revise my plans. Looks like what I'm doing might make me what I'll be. Isn't it enough we're stuck and cannot fight or flee? Weather burns the world of men. Tornadoes walk the land. When they stop me, I hope the cops enjoy me. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk at many things. I turn around to look around and try to take a stand, but don't know what I'm doing and can't say what I mean. I've always been an optimist. So that is what I'll be. I'm at your door with Wonder Bread, some butter, and some jam. If you kiss me, I think your lips will like me. Daylight is the splintered plank I walk into the sea. Got up with a hustle, but went down flimmed and flammed. When motherfuckers find me, they'll wonder who I be. I'm at the Hatter's party, shoving honey in my tea. The time we saved, the wage they paid, felt something like a scam. When they bite me, them greenhead flies annoy me. Won't say I'm a token, but can't say I rode free. You'll catch me at the Starbucks, broken donut in my hand. Don't like where it's going but that's just how I'll be. When they taste me, I hope the worms enjoy me. I think about, uh, so many of you have children. I don't have any children. Uh, but I think about, so many of you have children and many of my friends have children and having been a kid and thinking now about the kinds of things my parents worried about. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia during the era of the Rizzo uh, regime, 
uh, and those policemen were always in our neighborhoods, you know. And I think about that sometimes now, what it meant and what it still means, if not worse, maybe. And I'll read this poem um, for Tamir Rice, the, the young brother who was shot uh, before the cops got out the car, you know. So, anyway, this is a poem called A Go. And uh, I refer to the word time, but I'm spelling it two different ways uh, in the poem. Uh, both time is in the passage of the hours and time, uh, the, the spice. Um, It has an epigraph, uh, Albury Park, June 2002, and I had gone back there, and it was a place where when I was a kid, uh, me and some of my friends used to wrestle. But I read this for Tamir Rice. I don't know where they are now. Vince and Nadja. Days like these, we'd walk to the park and wrestle the whole afternoon. Jigsawed leaves and yellow grass took over our free nations of black boy hair. We were 12 in the ticklish grip of just about everything. Naj loved red shoelace licorice, and Vince blacked big V's on the backs of his hands. Trying to pin those guys was like trying to braid the tongue of a snake. And we laughed the way June's sun beams on trombone brass. I like to believe the craziness that made us tackle and roll blew in from a last storm of childhood genius. That blind faith in the glory of playing whatever you want. But maybe we had just found a way to rush the time it would take to shove past our parents a way to wait without waiting for the years to let us out, with no homework, no bedtime, and no reason to clean up our rooms. This was before we saw how it was and turned secretly desperate, before our eyes were sharpened by sex, before they killed king, and race bled all over our lives. And if time did anything then, it only made us younger. Or if it didn't, it only touched us the way our mothers brushed our hair. Roughly, but just meaning to help us look better. But it's different now. Nobody grades my citizenship and my face won't be smooth again. I can't find my friends, and when I do, they've strayed into these half-bald, middle-aged men whose voices I remember, kind of. The way I remember the fried apples my mom used to fix when I was still a bacon-headed boy, begging to sizzle along in the world's hot skillet. But it's different now, and it's not the same. These trees are bigger than the ones we tussled under. And my tough father has grown smaller than me and kind. 
And I don't know anymore. I don't know what I knew about not getting pinned to the ground. But one summer when I was halfway done with my teens, I heard my great aunt say she didn't like the flavor of time. And not knowing any other way to spell that sound, I stared at the kitchen wall, at the flowery face of the plastic clock, and watched the second hand wheeling its well-worn way around. And I knew, even then, that somehow, without really trying, I'd become older than those hula-hooping little girls whirling their skinny hips down the alley. And older than I'd been just the minute before. And I was glad to make, I was glad to be made of that many years. But I did start to wonder how it would feel and what on earth it would mean when I could actually taste it. I'll read this poem, because I just, I just have to. I figure, why not? If I can't take chances among the CC and company, now, I can't take no chances nowhere. Anyway, so this is a poem called The Further Adventures of Tudor the Turtle. Now, I'm old enough to have watched Tudor the Turtle on television. I don't know how many of you know who Tudor the Turtle was, but Tudor the Turtle was just this little turtle, and he hung out with this wizard. <laughs> well, you know what I'm talking about. And by the way, Will Scott's in the audience. I know you don't want me to say that. He's the Yale Series of Younger Poets Award winner from a couple years back. He's right over there. He's not going to raise his hand, though. No. But anyway. Um, anyway, in Tutor the Turtle with the Wizard, what he would do is Tutor would always ask the Wizard to send him places that, you know, he thought would be interesting or uh, give him adventures, you know, that he thought might be exciting. And the Wizard would cast this spell. And the Wizard... That, and, the, <laughs> and the Wizard would cast this spell. And the spell is actually the... Uh, the, the epigraph to the poem. The Further Adventures of Tudor the Turtle. The epigraph. Trezent, trezent, trezel throne. Time for this one to come home. It's in two voices, the poem. After all I have told you, Tudor, are you sure you want to be black in America? Well, gee, Mr. Wizard, times have changed. It might be a little rough, but I'll be down with the brothers. They'll show me the ropes. But Tudor, look, the Republicans are on the rampage. White people in general seem like dangerous playmates. And the black community is riddled with, with self-inflicted wounds. Yet and still, Mr. Wizard, I would be African-American. I've read about Fannie Lou Hamer and Malcolm. Black people are bold and resilient, and I want to be one. I want to raise up like Michael Jordan and blow jazz with Wynton Marsalis. And, and, what, Tudor, what? And I wants to get funked up, Mr. Wizard. <laughs> P-Funk, the bomb. All right, Tudor. Remember, if you hear any noise, it's just me and the boy. 
And this is the incantation. Two parts laugh and three parts pain. Cutting lash and hard-won gain. Thumping bass and rumble drums. Dr. King and drive-by guns. Skin of dark and spark of eye. Sade's grace and Pippin's glide. Purple heart and might of back. Time for Tudor to be black. Tudor, transformed, disappears into America. Ten minutes pass. Help, Mr. Wizard! read this poem. When I was writing the Blade poems, I was wrestling with a lot of things, um, primarily the sense that under the, under the w, George W. Bush regime, um, some, something genuinely evil had really taken hold of not only uh, the country, but even the, maybe the world in a certain kind of way. But it's also, um, Blade is a figure uh, it's also about the idea of being black and alienated also, although I'm not sure people hear it that way sometimes. But I figure I'd read these poems because I think about the, the scene that's going on now where we're seeing image after image after image of brothers being uh, killed, harassed, beaten in various ways. And so this is, I'll just read this, this poem, Blade's Voice. This is called Blade unsympathetic. I imagine most of you know who Blade is, but he's the vampire slayer uh, seen in the movies uh, by Wesley Sn- played by Wesley Snipes. And this is called Blade Uns- Unsympathetic. Uh, the epigraph is by Deacon Frost. They don't matter. They're our food. I'm talking about people. Blade Unsympathetic. Ever take communion? Ever watch the war on TV? This place is for predators, baby. It doesn't matter that you never knew. Your innocence is the key they turn to, lock, to let you out and lock you in. Nobody wants to see what's really happening and by the time you start to understand the baby teeth are gone and the big teeth come in you're in the blood and the blood's on you if you play along almost everyone will sort of be your friend in the human world don't the wolves Look a lot like the sheep before the slaughter begins. Try to remember, is that your face in the window? Is that your name on the card? Maybe you should get some body armor 
What else can I say? Mine is black. Eat as much garlic as you can. All right, just a couple more. I don't want to keep you. I know you've heard plenty of poems. Let me see. I'll read you this poem. This is a kind of a prayer. It's called Refugee. I mean, I think we all write for a lot of reasons, but sometimes you write to find an opening in your own uh, head, your own soul uh, that you didn't know was there. And so maybe this poem is coming from that place or those, that kind of place. Refugee. Landed here. My brown skin like a noise. Between two mouths, a temple. One kiss, and I have no name. I give it away. I step out of an hour. Wait for the house in my blood to open. poems I've written over the years, I didn't know this, of course, until I started looking back at old stuff. I've been trying to, to talk about being a kid, and I never, not sure exactly why, except that um, there was a kind of benign innocence that kind of permeates your head, for better and for worse, you know, I guess, in, and, and as I've gotten older and the world has become more and more difficult to, 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 to deal with or to to wrap my head around, I, I, keep, I think I retreat to some of these things just to remember how it was, uh, and probably how it was for many of us uh, as children. This is just called Double Dutch, and it's just a meditation that grew out of a, a moment when I was sitting on the steps. I was in my 20s when I wrote this poem. Uh, I was watching, I was sitting on the steps in the summer uh, watching the sweat uh, pop out of my skin because I was in Texas. It was so, so damn hot. Amanda knows what I'm talking about. Anywhere so hot, and so every time the sweat would come out of your, out of a pore, the sunlight would reflect off of it, so it looked like stars were coming out of your skin, and so that's where this started. In the afternoon, tiny stars of sweat beam from my skin. A mockingbird nabs a bug. The seedy head of a dandelion goes bald in wind, and I'm starting to remember an ice cream cone I got one summer. I was up to my waist in weeds. 
there were the weird berry trees, the red apartments, and me with a bucket full of grasshoppers. In the alley down the hill, three chocolate girls, two turning, two ropes swaying, Three, six, nine, the goose drank wine, the monkey chewed tobacco on the streetcar line, and the one in the middle jumping double dutch as though there were no time and no other way. Later, I was going to the schoolyard. I was going to play football with Melvin Snooper and Jimmy White. They would be waiting in the big shade by the monkey bars and maybe Crystal and Vanessa still in t-shirts with their big stuff. Me and the fellas would make dishonorable plans for the night. I knew what Mel would say. I knew we itched for those soft shapes under cotton. Then my mother called me. She was across the street holding an ice cream cone. It was lemon. And I'm at the age now where um, I'm certainly fortunate that my parents are still alive, but they're very old. And so I'm just beginning to, to, to gather, um, you know, to, re- to recall their lives um, uh, and research, at least from, their, from my friends and relatives that are around, you know, things about them. And this is a poem called Morning Where You Are. And uh, my mother always uh, was always saying this to me and my brother when we were little, because, you know, when you're a kid, you dress any old way. You know, we just put on clothes, whatever. You know, I just want to get outside and play, you know. And she would always say, don't go around looking like I would if I could, but if I can, how can I? <laughs> Morning where you are. Some spring days, she and her sister, Eva, strolled up Boyer Street, and you could tell they were the Blueford girls again. Blue suits, black heels, gold pins, and early April pulled up in its cool limousine. I was a teenager then and had no idea what that walk meant, the royalty in it, the defiance. How, in what a few years, in what seemed a few years, what could never end would end. My aunt dies on a bad mattress, one flat soda in the fridge. And my mother, stolen from herself, her smile no longer made for her mouth. Maybe now, It's always sunlight, splintered behind the trees. Evening, the wind down, cars, like conversations, pause and move on. My mind walking its three-legged dog from this to that. And once more, I begin to think about Barbara Bluford, English teacher, Pinochle player, born on a train bound for Virginia. My mother grew up a city girl, proud of her father, the one black dental surgeon in Philadelphia. 
When I was little, I'd sit on her lap and wave from the window. My father, waving back, headed for the bus. It was the early 60s, the news just beginning to bleed. She was kind and solid in that take-no-nonsense parental way and dressed so sharp that a glimpse might cut you. Those hats she wore to church, bronze feathers blazing against gold, or the rose crown with the cream band braided around a brim so wide it held another sky. Some nights we played Pochino, four glasses, grape Kool-Aid. Me, my brother, and my dad. She filleted the cards like a five-star chef. The kitchen clock adding up, the tiny jackpot ripening. My mother swears she's never cooked a turkey, though for five decades she did it twice a year. Last Wednesday, she started pouring Wheaties at sunset. I was on the phone. It's evening, Ma. Evening. She said, it may not be morning where you are, but it's morning here. Before the bad dentures, she had the gladdest smile. A morning unto itself, any day starting over, wherever she found us. In college, my father said, she used to smile like that at me. When she slipped in the lecture hall, he picked her up. Fisk University. 1945, World War II barely over, fallout still flying the stratosphere, lamplit nights, my father below her window, his kappas to her deltas, the brothers in chorus, his hopeful solo climbing the ivy, only you. Picture the lit major in Arna Bontemps English class. Her mid-calf skirt, her blouse blue jay blue, the matching pumps, hand up, the answer, a lantern in her eyes. And Mr. Chemistry, Thomas Siebel's the third, dapper cat from Oklahoma, snap brim hat, pinstripe suit, spit-shine shoes, that easy side-to-side shuttle of his shoulders when he walked. My nearly adult parents. On their honeymoon, Niagara Falls must have washed over them like an avalanche. A passion like sunrise that first time. Like meeting the prophet and having all the answers asked. Growing up, I thought I knew what was what. The hammer of each day barely missing me. Me, with my mother's face, my father's heavy hands. I remember 
Les McCann, jam in the living room. Dad, cool on the couch, patting his thigh. Mom's fearless soprano on Sundays. Butter rum lifesavers on the subway. T.S. on his tie clip. That five-pound bass. Wishes rising from his pipe. Her wild bird cackle of a laugh. Roast beef, string beans, apple peach pie. So this is what, what, turns into. Bits of your life straggling behind you. Empty cans hitched to the newlywed's car. Or the ragged tail of one red kite. My father playing it like a big fish in the sky. And my mother brushing my Brillo head, teaching me the wonderful cinnamon toast and how to act in church and not to wear polka dots with plaids. Okay, uno más. All right, just one more. That's that's a thirty-minute poem. Yeah, that's a thirty-minute poem. You don't want to hear that one now. We'd all be crawling out of here if I did that one, including me. But But yeah, you can see. Yeah, it is on YouTube. So I'll read you something um, short, sweet. Sorry, the poem I thought was here is not in here. I'll read this one instead. This is called The View. As if I'd been stolen from myself. As if my self had somehow been subtracted. And I was left with this, this worried, balding man. I watch him getting under my skin, into my shirts. Is it time? Is his eyes from the glass look almost happy, almost past me, as if I were blocking the view, as if my life had been recast and it was just a matter of days until he shoved me aside, until I took my big ideas and left. And maybe this is what you all have tried to tell me with your sympathetic grins and plans, plans to save for the future. 
Is it time that does this? Or is it money? The way we wilt into its arms like sad children hoping to be held for a while. So soon. This seems so soon. I remember the seed in my blood. The words alive. How love raised a fist. Ah, Angela. Ah, SDS. Ah, Freedom Riders. Oh, revolution never televised. Thank you very much. A real honor. Thanks, Reggie. And thanks to the library. Thank you.